But 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'd like to call your attention to three verses. It's the last three verses of this chapter. Let me begin reading here, verse number 14. The Bible says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This morning, I'd like to begin a mini-series, which will carry on for the next couple of weeks. It's going to be on the importance of the church, the importance of the church. And so today, I'd like to preach on this aspect of it, assessing the importance of the local church. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your people that are gathered together. Help us as we are still and hear thy word. May you speak to us, Lord. Help us to be like little Samuel in the Old Testament. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. May we be obedient to that which we hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were to ask the average person today, why is the church important? I think you'd probably receive a varied amount of answers. Some immediately would probably make fun of the question because to them, church is really not important at all. But others might say, well, the church to me is kind of like a museum. Looks like they preserve things from the past. Nice place to visit when it's raining, can't do anything outside. And uh, they're just a place that's out of touch with the modern world. To others, they view the church as something political. They say, well, you know, the church is that powerful voting block for conservatives. They hold back the erosion of morality and try to preserve the family. And then some see the church's importance from a social standpoint. In other words, the church is there to help meet the physical needs of the poor, the emotional needs of certain people, And they're there for the very pivotal times of life, the birth of somebody, the marriage, the death, and times of crisis. And yet, sadly, there are many churchgoers that only look at the church as important for their own personal needs. These are the church shoppers that will look for a church to help make them feel good each week. They look at the church of giving them that weekly boost to help them cope with life. And I suppose if you were to go on and on on about this, you would find the varied answers of people about church. But really today, what I'd like to do is look at this passage and assess here the importance of the church. The book of 1 Timothy is exceptionally helpful to help let us see what the church is all about. And it gives us some time-tested culturally transcendent truths about the church. In other words, here's what Timothy is all about. It shows us the important aspects regarding what it means for the church to be the church. And Timothy was written by a seasoned preacher by the name of Paul 
to a young pastor in a city of Ephesus to help him know what he needed to understand about the local church. And these verses that I read, verses 14 to 15, part of our text today, could be considered a wonderful theme for the book of 1 Timothy. It's amazing to me how a couple of verses actually captures the message of the book and gives us certainly what we need. Paul wants to visit Timothy, but there are some things that holds him back, and he shares with Timothy the importance and value of the church. And I like what he says here in verse number 15. Look at these words. Timothy, if I tarry long, that is, if I don't, if I don't get to you when I am intending to get to you, I want you to know how you ought to behave in the church. Now, please understand something. Paul's not saying, Timothy, when you establish that church there, please don't run up and down the aisles. Please don't jump on the pews. How many of you remember raising your children and teaching them how they ought to behave in the church? I remember years ago in 2008, I was an associate pastor in Benita Springs and from time to time, I would be invited to preach at different places, and I actually was invited to preach here for two different Sundays. They were in between pastors, and I'll never forget, as we always did with our family, driving to that place where I'd preach, we gave our children the lecture of what to do, what not to do. How many have been there like that? Oh, yeah. Now, I told our children, I mean, we were very stern about it, and, and I just said, now, don't do this and don't do that. Be sure that you're kind. Be sure you're doing this. Well, I must have left something out because something happened at the conclusion of the service that it just blows my mind away to this day. I taught the Sunday school class. It was a combined class here in the auditorium. Then I preached Sunday morning. We had a wonderful moving of the Spirit of God. And I came down to the front, and I was greeting a number of people for probably what about 10, 12 minutes. And when I got done, I began to make my way back and I came out to the foyer and there was a large group of people in this circle. And I thought, what in the world's going on back here? So I began to nestle my way in and lo and behold, my son James was in the middle of everybody talking Donald Duck. <laughs> and people are laughing. They're just, they're cutting up, they're saying, and these are the words I didn't want to hear, do it again, do it again. That was one of the rules we didn't give to them, but you know, I tell you, it's amazing about kids and how they behave in church, but that's not what Paul is talking about, behaving in church. You see, the word behave here in this verse, if you would turn over one page to chapter 4, verse 12, there's another word in the King James Bible that is translated from the same Greek word. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Let no man, Paul says, despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, and then notice this, in conversation. The word conversation, the word behave, both of them refer to our conduct or our manner of living. So really, Paul is gathering together with Timothy and saying, I want you to understand something. I'm referring to your conduct, to your manner of living, and I want you to know how that is a part of the church and why the church is important. 
Tucked within this pastoral admonition from Paul is a great description of the local church because following the word behave, he gives the rationale or the basis for taking the church so seriously. So I want to look at three phrases that follow this word behave and help us get a clear sense of why the church is important. And I want to do that by asking three questions that will help us assess the importance of the local church. Question number one, am I rightly related to the church? Am I rightly related to the church? Now, the first phrase there in verse number 15 grabs my attention here. He says, how thou oughtest behave thyself, notice here, in the house of God in the house of God. Now, when we think of church, we use church in the sense of the building. We say, this is the house of God, and there is something to be said about that. We refer to this as a place that is God's dwelling, but we often say these phrases, I'm going to church, we're going to church, as if it's just, this is it about the church, it's just in this building. Can I say that you and I, who are believers, we are the church. We make up the body of believers called the church, that called out assembly. You see, when Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 16, I will build my church, Jesus didn't say then after that to the disciples, now pick up your hammer, get your hard hat, get some of the tools that you need. We're going to erect a church. No, that's not what he meant by building the church. He meant about getting the gospel out, seeing people get born again by faith in Jesus Christ, and those coming together make up the church. But why use the word house of God? We don't often see that referring to you and I as believers that we don't often say we're the house of God. Well, the very phrase that is used here, the the Greek word house of God can refer to a physical structure, but here it references those that are within that household. If you were to go down to the Gulf, uh, South Gulf Cove area, and you were to drive down my street and pass my house, you would say, there's the Boucher household. And you'd be correct. But what makes that household is not just the fact that I purchased that house. What makes that household is the fact that the Bouchers lived there. And if I invited you to my house, imagine how kooky it would be that I wouldn't be there. Nobody would want to be in a house that is owned by somebody else to try to spend time with them, and they're not even there. What makes my household special, if you're with me, is the fact that we can be there together. What makes Calvary Baptist special? What makes every other Bible-believing church special? It's not the building. You could be meeting out in the open air. It is the people of God that make that building. Amen. So i got to ask you a question here today. If a household is made up of people and there are people like children in a household that are rightly related to the mom and the dad of the household, can I ask you, are you rightly related to the one who is the head of this house? Who's the head of this house? The Lord Jesus Christ. Are you rightly related to him? 
Can you say today that Jesus Christ is my personal Savior? I didn't, I didn't talk about whether you go to church or not. I didn't talk about what money you give to the church. I'm not talking about how many uh, Bible verses that you've learned. I'm asking the fact, do you know Jesus as your Savior? If you do, then you are a child of God. You're part of the what we call the church. What a beautiful thing it is to have the church. Those that are brought into God's family are brought in. And as Romans chapter 8 talks about, we are adopted into God's family. Ephesians chapter number 2 talks about how you and I, who are Gentiles, and I would have to gather here today that most of us are not Jewish, we are Gentile, and God in the Old Testament worked with the Jewish people, but now in the New Testament, there is nothing of race, there is nothing of a particular country or a particular nationality. All of us who have been saved have been brought together, and Ephesians says in verse 19, we've been brought into the household of God. You know what's beautiful about this body of believers? If you're saved here today and you're part of Calvary Baptist Church, you today, regardless of where you grew up, regardless of your background, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your ethnicity, you and I together are part of the family of God. And guess what? I look out at a bunch of people who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. You and I have been saved gloriously by Jesus Christ and being a child of God and you being a child of God brings something special. That's why the church is important because it's not just coming in and just sitting down and, all right, entertain me, preacher. No, no, I'm getting together with family. I'm getting together with God's people and I'm connecting with those that are here, and I want to tell you something. There ought to be something electric. There ought to be something exciting about meeting together with God's people. How many of you ever been to a sporting event? Would you raise your hand for just a moment? All right, it could be high school, college, professional. I've been to my fair share of sporting events, and I'll tell you, there's something intriguing that happens when there is a pivotal moment in a game. I've been there for football games, basketball games, hockey, you name it. When something happens in a particular game, when everybody gets excited about the home team, it's amazing. You can have people behind you that you've never met before, but you're turning around and getting them high fives. You're getting excited. You're putting arms around people. You're like, look at that goal that was scored. And you're all excited. And all of a sudden now you've got people that you've connected with that you never met before and don't even know where they live. I'm saying to you today that when you come into Calvary Baptist Church, I'm not necessarily referencing the fact you give high fives to everybody, okay? But if there's something that connects people at a sporting game, how much more so should it happen within the local church? That God's people come in and they're excited to be able to hear from God, to be able to sing before the Lord, and to be able to fellowship with God's people. So question is, are you rightly related to the church? Number two question I'd like to ask you this. What am I coming to church for? What am I coming to church for? Now look again at verse number 15. Let me read and leading up to this. Paul says, if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God. And notice now the next phrase, which is the church of the living God. 
Notice that. Now, let me take that phrase and just break it up for just a moment and help us understand. First of all, let's start with the latter part of the phrase, the aspect of the living God. Now, Paul's writing to Timothy, who is a pastor in Ephesus. Paul understood this. The believers in Ephesus fully understood that all through that city, people were given over to idols. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was in another city by the name of Athens, he was very moved in his spirit because the Bible says that the city was wholly given to idolatry. And one day he got up on this particular place called Mars Hill and he met with a bunch of the religious and political leaders of the area and he began to talk with them about what they had dedicated as the unknown God. What's interesting is Paul begins to preach to them about the God that he knew, the living God. You see, idols were a part of the culture. Ephesus was especially known for idol worship. There were people that constantly worshipped idols. There were businesses that manufactured idols, and it was a major staple in the city of Ephesus. And so Paul, on his missionary journey, passing through here, recognized the great worship of idols of the people there. They carried small replicas with them into the temple. They placed these idols in their homes. Idol worship was important. So therefore, I want you to notice in verse 15 and in other places in the scripture, when Paul says the living God, he's not giving living this this descriptive word as something that is neutral. He wants his audience Timothy and all of those in Ephesus to understand that the God that we serve is alive. Unlike the idols that are worshipped in here. And may I say to you today, as Paul is, is giving this, this idea of the house of the living God, he's in essence saying, your idols out here in Ephesus are dead, but our God is alive. Your worship is fake, but our God is real. Paul is courageously making a statement here about the power and the authority and the reality of Christianity because God is alive. Now, I must say, this is the crux of the matter today. Oh, I'm not saying people are worshiping idols. I've not walked in anybody's home that I see that they get down on their knees and worship some idol. But may I say this to you? That you may not have some idol you've carved with your hands, but for some of you, what's in your wallet is your idol. Some of you, your job is your idol. What you can hold in your hands, your vehicle, your homes, everything around us. And you say, well, preacher, that's not my idol. Oh, let me ask you a question. Where are you trying to get fulfillment in this life? Where's your joy? The reason some of you Christianity is not much and you come into church and you say, well, preacher, I don't really get a whole lot out of a church because you're serving the idols that are dead out here that will not give you much beyond this life. 
But I'm here to tell you that there is a God who is alive, who wants to meet with you, who wants to know you. And as you come into this church, how imperative it is, how imperative it is to be able to get connected with the living God. You know, my desire is as a pastor for every one of these young people, high school, college, these young children that are here, I want them to see that there is a church that is moving forward for God where people are being saved, where lives are being changed, where things are happening. Because to most in our society today, they walk into churches and sadly, church is just simple church life. We have our little breakfasts, we have our little uh, outings, we go here, we do this, and I'm not against any of those things. Those are imperative. But where's the church that is showing the power of God? Where's the church that's showing that God is alive, that people still can be saved today? And my friend, I tell you, Paul says here, this is the place of the living God. But notice he uses the word church. The second thing I want you to notice about the phrase is the word church. The Greek word that is used here, the word ekklesia, is a compound word which literally means to call out. The idea is of an assembly. But I want you to notice something. This is not just some normal assembly. It is an assembly to meet with God, the living God. The church is a gathering of God's people in the presence of God. And I'm going to tell you something. This idea of meeting with God is not just new in the New Testament era. Would you think with me throughout the Bible how God desired to meet with his people? Think with me in just a moment. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. Did not God walk with Adam and Eve? Spend time with them in the cool of the day. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, a consequence of sin is that they were banished from the Garden of Eden where the presence of God was. Exodus 19, 11, after being delivered from Egypt, God meets with his people at Mount Sinai. You look throughout the book of Exodus and 2 Chronicles, and you note that the glory of the Lord filled the earthly temple and the tabernacle, and, the glo- and that glory was representative of his presence that was there. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the promise was given that a child would be born, and this child was not any ordinary child, but he would be named Emmanuel, God with us. John chapter 1 verse 14 talks about how Jesus was the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit makes your body the temple of the Holy Ghost. And then I love this in Revelation 21 verse 3, when everything is brought to a consummation and the new Jerusalem comes down to earth, there is this proclamation that is made that the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. Can I say to you today, the idea of being called out to meet with God is central to the Bible's givings of our relationship with him. The church's uniqueness in the world is that it is the assembly of God's people who have been given over for the purpose of meeting with a living God. Now put that together, the church of the living God. This means that you and I as a church in meeting here are to experience the very presence of God. 
The whole purpose of Sunday worship is not so you can catch up with person about what's going to be happening this week. It is to be able to meet with God. The weekly gatherings of God's people here on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night as God's people gather together. What is our desire is to meet with the living God. But how sad today many church meetings become so dry that people don't sense that God is among them. Many churches across America and around this world, there is no sense of God's presence there. There is no, thus saith the Lord in preaching. There is no sense in the mission of the church that God is among them. They just act like any other secular organization. And there's no reality amongst God's people, the fellowship of God's people, that they show love one to another. I want to tell you something. The church is most glorious. It is most alive. It is most vibrant when the gathered come together and assemble and know that God is in the midst of them. Every Sunday, we ought to set our sights on one goal, meeting with God and meeting with God's people. That's the called out assembly. It is the fact that God is here. Well, first question, are you rightly related to the church? Number two, are, why are you coming? But number three, do I understand what the church is all about? Do I understand what the church is all about? Now, notice the third phrase and the very last phrase given here. He says here, the church, that is the church of the living God, is the pillar and the ground of truth. Now, this phrase doesn't necessarily describe what the church is to be like. It actually tells us what the church is to do. It's giving us the action of the church. And Paul puts it in these terms. He says, it is the pillar and the ground of of the truth. Now notice the definite article, the. There's something very specific here. And what does Paul mean by this? Well, he means the very divine revelation given from God to his people. The message that God has. In other words, when he's talking about that the church of the living God is the pillar and ground of truth, he means that we have here the truth of who God is, the truth of who we are, the truth of what is right, the truth of what is wrong, the truth of what the meaning of the universe is all about, the truth of how God's people can be right with God. We're given here in the church of the living God the very gospel, and therefore we are given these doctrines. In fact, I wish I had time to spell it out, but in verse number 16, there is some wonderful truth given about Jesus Christ, how God, that's Jesus, was manifest in the flesh how he was received up into glory. And there are six phrases that are given. There are some pertinent truths about Jesus that are given. But I want you to know something here today. God is known and God is characterized by truth. Some people get a little uneasy when they come into a church that begins to stand for some things. Now, in our day to day, you start standing for anything and you're going to start getting kind of picked out as a little odd. We're living in a very milk toast day today, aren't we? Very soft society. 
We're living in a politically correct place where nobody can use these terms and nobody can call out certain things and nobody can say what is sinful. Nobody can say what is right and wrong. But I want to tell you something. The church is the pillar and the ground of truth. And when we stand up and we don't give our opinion, but we hold high the truths of the Word of God, that's what God's asked us to do. I've had people say to me, preacher, you ought not to talk about abortion. That's a political issue. No, it's not. It's not a political issue. Abortion is an issue that God took up from the very beginning. He talked about life and death. Some people say, well, you ought not to talk about marriage. You ought not to talk about those things. I want to tell you something. We as a church are the pillar and ground of truth. And if we don't stand for what is truth, who will? Who will? There are churches all around today that are caving on so many different issues. Many of you are familiar with certain denominations today, even in our town here, that are starting to question who gets married. Who are, pre- who are preachers and can they be of a certain uh, persuasion socially? Can they do certain things? I want to tell you something. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. Amen. And we must stand for what is right. But while we stand for what is right, can I tell you there's an evil one that is trying to throw out deception? He's the father of lies, the great deceiver. He's the one who despises God. He despises the Bible. He despises everything that is truth. And therefore, he's doing everything to blind people's eyes to the light of the gospel. And that's why we must hold forth the truth of the Word of God. In the midst of a dark world that is full of sin and deception, there is this place called the church whose mission is to guard the truth and lead people to it. This church is to be the instrument of God's life-changing, hope-bringing, devil-defeating truth. But the problem is we don't view church this way. Too many are caught up. They want a church that it sounds like a psychologist's office. They want a church that has all the latest marketing techniques. We come to church on the experience that we get. We want our emotions to be tickled. We're looking for the methods, but we are weak theology-wise. And the church is to be the pillar and the ground of truth. Why did Paul use those statements? Well, he said to Timothy about the pillar and ground of truth because in Ephesus, there was a large temple, the temple of Diana, that had a lot of pillars. In fact, the temple itself was estimated to be 450 feet long, 250 feet wide, 60 feet high, and it boasted 127 columns or pillars. And this is what the world all knew about this temple. And the role of a pillar was not only to support it, but many times it would be raised up high, tall pillars to show forth its magnificence. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., it's amazing how many of the buildings in our nation's capital have pillars. Boy, the beauty of that. It's wonderful to see. But a pillar doesn't just adorn a building, though it may do that, but it is there to support. But notice now he uses it's the ground of the truth. 
The Greek word that is used here could also be translated that of a foundation, a support. In other words, the point is a structure provides support and stability for that which is whole, which it holds. Through time and testing, a building will remain steadfast only as long as the foundation is secure. Just a couple weeks ago, we pulled out from our gymnasium that beautiful wood floor that we had. Sadly, through the storm, it buckled, and uh, we had to pull that out. And I remember our trustees kept telling me, Preacher, we've got to get that wood floor out. We've got to see what's underneath. And I understood what they were saying. There was concern that there could be problems with the floor. Now, praise God, there's no problems with that cement floor. But I'm telling you here, that's the importance here of this foundation. An entire building can collapse if the foundation is weakened or destroyed. So the church here, as a pillar in the ground of truth, has a dual role. With the ground of truth, she's to hold to the truth firmly, that it doesn't collapse under the weight of false teaching. But as a pillar of truth, she is to boldly display the beauty and the majesty of the truth of God. That's what our job is as a church. That's why when you come in to church on Sunday, you are to approach coming in here as if heaven and hell were on the line. Because it really is. Because you walking around in the world throughout the week are finding out all of the stuff that's going on out there. And why I'm preaching our series on in the beginning from Genesis 1 through 11 and dealing with all the the confusion of our society today is because that's our job is to proclaim the truth. Proclaim it. The church is God's means to provide that life-changing message that Jesus came to save sinners. The church as a whole, as individuals, ought to declare and preserve that life-changing message. We ought to protect it. We ought to guard it. We ought to preserve it as if our life depended on it. We ought to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel as broadly and as effectively as possible because our life depends on it. Eternity depends on it. Can I say today that as Paul wrote Timothy, I'm confident of this one thing, Paul loved the church. And he didn't just love the church in Ephesus, but he loved the church that Jesus established. question I have for you is, do you love the church? Why did you come today? You say, preacher, I came because uh, there was another person and I, we were exchanging something and I, I, I just came for that. No, no, you ought to think about why you're coming. Why are you here today? What is the church all about? Why does the church matter? What makes the church important? Well, if you ask the Apostle Paul, he'd tell you, here's how, why you ought to have certain conduct in your life. Here's why you ought to live a certain way because the church is something beautiful. It's a household. It's where God's people gather together. It's a place where God is. And it's a place where eternal truth matters and makes a difference. No wonder why Jesus said, I will build my church. and The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a great composer 
by the name of Giacomo Pocini, whose operas number among some of the world's favorites, but in 1922 he found out that he had cancer. He was determined to write his final opera, which was called Turnandot, and some people who know classical music consider that to be one of his best. His students, though, when they found out he had cancer, pleaded with him, please take your rest, don't, don't waste your strength, but he persisted, and remarking, in fact, at one point, if I don't finish my music, my students will finish it. In 1924, Puccini was taken to Brussels to be operated on, and two days after the surgery, he died. And his students did finish the work. In 1926, the gala premiere was held in Milan under the baton of Puccini's favorite student, Arturo Toscanini. Everything went brilliantly well that particular night until they came to the point in the score where the master had been forced to put his pen down. Toscanini, his face wet with tears, stopped production put down his baton, turned to the audience, and cried out, Thus far the master wrote, but he died. After a few moments, a smile came on his face, and Tuscanini again picked up that baton and cried out again, but his disciples finished his work. Can I say to you, our master died was buried, and he rose again, and he's ascended to the Father, leaving to you and I one of the most important tasks, and that is to proclaim the gospel amongst the nations. To do it, you and I must commit to a real, vibrant relationship with a living God. I mean, we must recognize how important the church is. Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. You know my heart, Father. I did the best I could to explain what the church is about from this passage of Scripture. But, Lord, it's more important not what I say, but how right now you are speaking to hearts. And I pray that each person would apply something to their life. While heads are bowed, eyes are closed here this morning. The very first question that I asked is a question that I want to circle back to right now. And the question is, are you rightly related to the church? You say, oh, preacher, I'm, I'm here, aren't I? I'm, I'm not talking about whether you're sitting in a pew. I'm actually talking about you and your relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, let me ask these questions here. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Has there been a time when you've placed your faith in Him, that you've acknowledged you're a sinner, that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, and you by faith have believed in Him as the only way to heaven? It's possible you're here today without Jesus Christ. I'd like to invite you today to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. 
You say, preacher, can, can I do that? Can I be brought into a relationship with Christ? You absolutely can. How wonderful it's been some 300 people through the Samaritan's Purse and the chaplains that have gone out week after week have seen in the last few months those trust Christ as Savior. Last week we had a handful of people that placed their faith in Jesus Christ. On a regular basis, people are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. Why don't you do it today? You say, how can I do that? It's simple. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You see, you need to confess with your mouth. That is by acknowledging here and praying to the Lord. Please understand there's not anything as magic with the words that are spoken. That's why the Bible says that you've got to believe with your heart. And so I'd like to invite you right now. I'd lead you in a sinner's prayer, what I call a sinner's prayer. I'm going to lead it publicly. I'm going to say it out loud. And if you mean this with all your heart and would like to be saved and have your sins forgiven and know that you're going to heaven someday, why don't you say this prayer to yourself? Here's the prayer. Dear Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I know I cannot save myself. I've tried good works, tried good things, but none of those things saved me. But I believe that you loved me, and you gave your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for my sins. And right now, I'm asking Jesus Christ, God's holy Son, to forgive me of all my sins and become my personal Savior. Now, while heads are bowed, eyes are closed, if you just prayed that prayer, I want you to know you made the best decision in the whole wide world. And I'd like to rejoice with you. And I'd like to just, in prayer, just pray for you generally. And so by uplifted hand, you say, Preacher, just this morning, just right now, I prayed that prayer, and I asked the Lord to be my Savior. Would you just slip your hand up for just a moment? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Anyone here today? Preacher, I just prayed that prayer. I trust here today with the absence of a hand that every person knows Christ. In a moment, we'll have an invitation. The piano will be playing. Folks will stand. If God's burdening your heart right now, right now your heart's racing, you recognize the fact that you need Jesus Christ, why don't you make your way up front here? We'll have personal workers that will be glad to sit down with you and settle this matter. So let me talk to Christians here today. Christians, what's your view of church? Some of you are here today and you haven't, you've never joined a local church. I want to encourage you, if you sense God's presence here and God doing something, and you're saved, why don't you come and make it known right up front, I'd like to join this church. But I, I, I'd like to not only encourage people to consider about being a member, but I'd like to encourage people about praying for this church. You know, I want to tell you something. If we are going to have church where we're meeting with the living God and God is doing something, then we need God's people connecting with Him. And could I invite you to come and pray that this church, Calvary Baptist Church, would be the church that it needs to be? That every time we meet, that God would be here. And that we would be a church 
that is faithful on proclaiming the gospel, could I invite you to come? Whatever the need, I want to invite you to, when we stand in just a moment, to come and make it known. It might be you need to join Calvary Baptist. It might be that you've been saved but never been baptized. This would be the time to make it known, whatever it is. And I want to invite people to come and pray and ask God to help Calvary Baptist be what it ought to be. While heads are bowed, eyes are closed, would you stand to your feet, please? I'm going to pray. And then when I say amen, the piano will begin playing. And would you come and pray? You could stand at the front, kneel at the altar, sit in the front row, whatever it might be. But would you come and pray? Oh, how we need God's people to pray that this would be a place where God is felt and seen and known.